So now, Father, we come to you, these prayers of the people. We do want to take a little bit of time to pray for those who are in need, those whose hands are weak, whose knees are feeble, who have anxious hearts. So, Father, whoever you bring to our mind now that we know who's struggling emotionally, spiritually, physically, in relationships, in life, and finances, Father, we, your kids, bring these people to your throne now and ask for you to intercede. Father, we pray for those that are lost, that are blind, that are blind to their sin, blind to your love and to your mercy that we've already sung about. Father, we pray for people that you would bring to our mind now that don't know you, who are far from you or maybe rebelling. Uh, We ask, God, for you to intercede. And now, Father, we long for that day when uh, all the ransomed of the Lord, the redeemed, will return with singing, with joy, uh, where we obtain gladness and joy, and where sorrow and sighing will flee far, far away. In these few moments we have left, prepare us for that day. Uh, As we look at this book of Hosea, open our minds, Holy Spirit, we need your help. Uh, We need you to help us concentrate. We need you to help us Uh, engage our own hearts and we pray father that you do that now that after the end of this sermon uh, we would be more in love with you our father you our son the savior and you the holy spirit we pray in your name amen i'm going to jump right into hosea 11 it will be on the screen or it's in your laps on a device or a bible Uh, hosea 11 chapter 1 i mean chapter 11 verse 1 When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to the idols. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and I fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they've refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High... He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. 
They shall go out after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Hosea is a book, it's a minor prophet, written in 755 A.D. I hope you know by now that that's just a few years before 722. I, I said A.D., B.C., I'm sorry, B.C. And in 722 B.C., you remember what happens because I've told you so many times, so no need to quiz you on it, but I'm just going give, to give you the answer. 722 is when Assyria attacks the north, which we call Israel, and takes them captive. It's going to take them into exile. And then a few years later, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians are going to attack Judah, which is southern part of its divided kingdom, the southern part where Jerusalem is, and take them into captivity. So here, God is using Hosea as this illustration. He calls him as a prophet to communicate to the people, you have left me. And these are the natural consequences of your sin. This is the natural consequences of you worshiping somebody else besides me. You're going to have to pay for that. The Assyrians are going to come, and they're going to take you just for a little while. And then I'm going to bring you back, but I'm here. I'm waiting. He uses... Hosea's life as an illustration because whether we like it or not, all of our lives are an illustration. Either the consequences of God or the grace and the mercy of God. And here's how he used Hosea. He said, I need you to take Gomer, this wife of whoredom is what he calls her in chapter one, and kids of whoredom. I need you to take Gomer to be your wife. And then I want you to have kids. And I'm not even gonna let you name your kids. I'm gonna name your kids for you. Because I want your kids to be an illustration about what's happening. And so they had three kids together. The first one was named Jezreel, which means God will judge Jehu. The second one was named uh, Lo-Rahama, which means no mercy. And the third one was named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. So just imagine that, right? Imagine you're Gomer, you're brought into, uh, married with Hosea, and all of a sudden Hosea says, look, you don't even get to name your own kids. We're not going to name them Steve, we're not going to name them Todd, we're not going to name them any of that. We're going to name the first one uh, Jezreel, and we're going to name the second one Lo-Ramah, which means no mercy. And at this point, uh, I think I've told you this in the past, I, I love speaking to people with tattoos, Because tattoos tell a story. If you're going to ink something on your body, you have something to say. You have some kind of story. And I love talking to the people that have no mercy written right there. You know, that was a fad for a while. They'd have MMA fighters would have no mercy. I love finding those guys and talking to them and saying, do you have any idea what that means? That's biblical. And that usually is like, what? How's that biblical? It's from Hosea chapter 1. It means God's not going to have any mercy on us in our sin. And then I kind of back away because if they have no mercy written, they're pretty ready to throw a punch uh and then lo and me not my people and you just imagine hosea and gomer their little stroller at the playground with all the other moms and dads there what are your kids named jezreel no mercy he's the one beating somebody up over there 
and this one's not my people. We claim him, but it means that God doesn't claim us because we've turned away. You just imagine that scenario. Of course, Gomer left the family. Uh, she went off. She was unfaithful. We don't know if she went back to prostitution or if she was just unfaithful. But Hosea was called to redeem Gomer, to go win her back, and to pay for either the problems she was in or her ransom if she was in slavery. And so what happens so often in Scripture, especially the prophets, is this. There's a lower story that's happening. And the lower story is the true story between Hosea and Gomer, which is going on. That's an illustration. And then there's an upper story that's happening at the same time. This, this is all you have to do if you want to be a good theologian, is this right here. You can practice at home. The upper story is just like Hosea is called to love Gomer, so I, your God, I'm called to love you. Just as Hosea loves Gomer in her unfaithfulness and redeems her and ransoms her, so I, your God, will love you in your unfaithfulness, and I'll redeem you and I'll ransom you. And all of Hosea's life is an illustration just like ours is. So what does our life illustrate? Four things very quickly. Number one, God loves us more than we know. God loves us more than we know. The illustration that God uses to demonstrate his love in chapter 11 is this illustration of a child. Look at what it says in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing, yet it was I who loved them and healed them. And they didn't know that I healed them. The illustration that God uses to communicate to us his love for us is this. Remember when you have a child and you love them and you bathe them and you cleanse them and you protect them and you provide for them and you put them down for nap time and you give them snacks and you buy them presents and you do all of that stuff and they have no idea. Matter of fact, they don't even remember it. Elizabeth and I, we had a plan that we were not going to take our kids to Disney World and we're only doing the Disney World thing once. And we're not going, if you do it more than that, that's fine. It's just not us. But we're only going to do it when our kids are old enough to remember it. Like, why spend all this money when they can't even remember? So we waited till they were the age where they would all remember. You know what? Two of them don't remember, except for pictures. Kids don't remember all the nap times. Kids don't remember all the times that you love them. Kids don't remember all the times that you cleansed them. Kids don't remember all the times that you healed them. Kids don't remember. They have no recollection of that. And yet you do. And in the same illustration, God says, you have no recollection. You can't remember how much I have loved you. You have no idea how much I love you. The toddler has no idea how much his parents and grandparents love him. And in that same way, God loves us. And so look at what it says in verse 3. I taught Ephraim to walk. There's a little spiritual baby sitting on the other side of the living room with the Trinity. You know, come on, you can do it just a little bit further they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness. What a beautiful picture. And bands of love. I cannot think about that without thinking about the, the people in airports that have like those little harnesses they put on their toddlers with like the bungee string on it to keep them from like wandering off. That's not meant to be oppressive. That's meant to keep them from wandering off and getting lost. These cords of kindness, I've led them in that way bent down and I fed them 
It's a beautiful picture. And maybe, just maybe, we need to remember that we're kids again. That our ultimate purpose is not to grow up and mature, but to become more childlike in our faith. Scotty Smith, a good friend of mine, he sent me a meme this week, and the meme was this child sitting on Jesus' lap uh, in heaven. And the child said to Jesus, am I the only one here? And Jesus responded to the kid, you were the only one I could find whose theology was 100% correct. Now, we we know that meme is heretical by itself, right? Because nobody gets into heaven for good theology. You get into heaven based on what Jesus has done for you. So the whole thing is heretical, which is ironic enough. But we also know that there's something about kids. There's something about Jesus taking the kid on his lap and saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, be like one of these. Be like this child. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this the lack of mystery in our modern life is our downfall and our poverty a human life is worth as much as the respect it holds for the mystery i think this quote will be on the screen we retain the child in us to the extent that we honor the mystery retain the child in us therefore children have open wide awake eyes because they know that they're surrounded by mystery they're not yet finished with this world they still don't know how to struggle along and avoid the mystery as we do so first question i don't care i don't care if you're a teenager or you're 60 or 80 or uh 12 i I just don't care how old you are how could you become more childlike in your faith how could you become more like a kid who knows his heavenly father and knows that they're loved let me give you a couple ways here's the first way take a nap There's something about kids. They just don't mind falling asleep. We were in New York City once, and uh, one of my daughters fell asleep in my lap on the subway. I'm never falling asleep on the subway. Never. But this kid just assumed, if I check out and sleep right now, I'll be protected. I'll be cared for. It's an act of faith just to be able, like kids, it's an amazing act of faith to be able to just fall asleep wherever you want to. And what we have to learn to do as adults is take a rest, take a nap, let go of the things that we haven't been able to do and let God take care of those. That's why we have a Sabbath. That's why we have today. It's not the last day of the work week. This is the first day of the week where we say, and we commit it to God, and we say, this is the day I'm going to rest. I'm going to take a nap, maybe physically, maybe not. I'm going to rest from my labors, and God, I'm going to trust you that you can care for all the things that I'm not doing while I check out. What else do kids do? They cry. Kids just don't mind crying. When they're hurting, when they're struggling, when they're lonely, when they need something. But how often do we think we have to keep it together? We've got to mature, we've got to be able to handle it ourselves. But kids don't mind crying out. What else do kids do? Kids don't mind asking for absolutely anything. One of my daughters asked for a pony at her birthday party. No way, again, no. We're not doing a pony at the birthday party thing. But she didn't mind asking. And if you're a kid, if you're a child of the king of kings, we have to become kids enough that we don't mind asking. And they wonder. That's the first thing. Now, here's the second thing. God disciplines us perfectly. First, God loves us more than we know. Second, God disciplines us perfectly. Most discipline in this world 
is either too harsh or too lax. For example, uh, you might have heard of Xerxes, probably not, but maybe so. Xerxes, Persian king. And he was aboard a Phoenician ship, and he was trying to get through this channel, but the ship was too weighted down. So he stood at the bow, and he made an announcement to all the sailors. And he said, who would love and show their sacrifice and obedience to their king? And they got the point. A bunch of them jumped off, and they would most likely die because of that. They would be left at sea. But the ship rose enough to where it could get through the channel. Xerxes landed on the other side after getting safely there, and he brought the captain of the ship up, and he gave him a crown for protecting his life in a safe passage, and everybody celebrated. And then the next thing he did is said, cut off his head because he lost too many sailors at sea. <laughs> Pretty harsh punishment. I'm going to bring you up, and then I'm just going to knock you back down. Sometimes discipline is too harsh. Sometimes it's too lax. I don't know if you saw the article that I did about this uh, spoiled toddler and how the mom was relishing. It was her only kid. The husband was nowhere around, and the mom was relishing in how much she spoiled her kid. Bought him a $1,200 gold-plated pacifier, and then he lost it at the playground. And she cried about it because she didn't have enough money for another one. Those stories make me so angry, but who does it make you angry at? Not the kid. I feel sorry for the kid. It makes you angry at the parent. Like, what are you doing? That kid's going to grow up and be an absolute terror. So we, we know we need discipline. We don't want it to be too harsh. It can't be too lax because we'll just be spoiled. And here's the great news. God disciplines us perfectly it's perfect look at verse 5 they shall not return to the land of egypt but assyria shall be their king assyria shall be their king it's perfect i'm not going to let you go all the way to egypt again i'm going to prevent that but i have to let this happen to assyria i'm going to perfectly discipline you look if you're if you're in high school or junior high or elementary school you won't believe this but it's true your parents have spent hours upon hours upon hours upon hours, usually behind closed doors, trying to figure out with each one of you individually how to perfectly discipline you so you don't run away and become a prodigal, but instead you see the point and you're restored. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. But I guarantee you, your parents spend hours trying to figure out how can they see this problem while not running them off? And how can they see that this is intended to bring them back to us? We spend hours doing that, and we don't get it right, but God does. He knows how to discipline us as his kids perfectly, just exactly what we need to come back. He does it by allowing us to see the consequences of our sin first. And if we can't see the consequences of our sin, he'll let us see more of his discipline. And so if you're a Christian, what happens is he allows us to start to see our sin, start to get convicted, and that's the call to return. And why can we return? Because of verses 1 through 4. <laughs> I'm a God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. You can come back to me. It's a beautiful picture of what God does. He says, verse 7, my people are bent 
on turning away from me. I have to figure out how to perfectly measure out my discipline with purpose so they'll return. I don't want to destroy them, but I want to love them. Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, it's a long passage, so it's on the screen. But let's just look at what the author of Hebrews says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. So when you're miserable because of your sin, that's, a, that's God's mercy allowing you to see if you're always gossiping about people, you're not going to have any friends. That's a consequence of your sin. If you're always envious over what other people have, you'll never be content. If you're always lustful, you'll never find love. He allows us to have that discipline because he loves us. Verse 7 it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not be subjects to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. For at the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, here's the question. Do you sense right now in your life that somewhere you're out of accord with the Lord and he's trying to bring you back and he's letting you see the consequence of your sin? He might even be walking contrary to you in some ways. Well, it's the time to turn and return. It's the time to come back to him and repent. It's time to say, draw me near back to you, God. And why can we do that? The third point is because God's covenant love keeps you close. Look at verse 8. It's just beautiful. How can I give up on you, Ephraim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my anger. And he has every right to. Because <laughs> we're the spoiled kids. I will not execute my anger because I am God and not man. In other words, what God says is, it's my covenant love to you that gets you back to me because I'm not going to give up on you. No matter how much you sin, no matter how far away from me you are, no matter how selfish you are, God says, I look at you as my child and my heart grows compassionate. If you're not a believer, wrestle with that. Because chances are, if you're not a believer, you're rejecting a God who doesn't exist. <laughs> One that you've kind of fabricated in your mind that's easy to put to the side. But here, this is a God who loves you, and it's his covenant love to you that keeps you close and allows you to return. Cardinal Bellarmine was uh, Pope Clement VIII's personal theologian during the time of the Reformation with me and Cardinal Bellarmine hated the reformers and hated what they were doing and were reformed and he hated them he hated the Protestants and he would give a quiz at the end of his semester in the seminary that he taught to all the aspiring 
uh, Catholics coming up, and he would say, uh, the biggest Protestant heresy is fill in the blank. And what would you say it is? What's the biggest Protestant heresy from his point of view? You know what the answer was that he wanted people to write on the test? Assurance of faith. That's the biggest, we don't want anybody to believe that they could possibly be sure of their faith. We want people to work harder. We want the people to pay a little bit more for these cathedrals. We want people to make sure they're sacrificing to get their friends and their family members out of purgatory. We want this all man-centered, all work-centered, so you make it on your merits. You can't possibly know that you can be assured of your faith. That is a heresy. But friends, that's our doctrine that actually allows us to return back to Christ. It's his covenant love that God says, I won't give up on you, that allows us to return to him. It's what keeps it together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this from a prison in 1943 to a young bride, your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It's a status, an office, just as it is the crown not merely the will to rule that makes the king. So it's marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. It is not your love that sustains the marriage. But from now on, it's the marriage that sustains your love. (laughs) In other words, God says, my covenant love for you is what is going to sustain you. It's what allows you to come back when you don't feel close to me. Now, again, if you're not a believer, let me just say this. Uh, Most people who aren't believers are angry with God, as C.S. Lewis would say. They're angry with God for not existing. They kind of know he exists, but they don't want to recognize that, and they get angry at it. But here's a God. You won't find any love like this in your lifetime, a God who doesn't turn his back on you, but loves you because of what Christ did. And then for a believer, let me say this. Floyd McClung, he wrote uh, the book, The Father Heart of God. It's a must read, by the way. True humility involves the willingness to be known for who we really are and to take God's side against our own sin. (laughs) I love that quote. True, let's keep it back up on the screen. True humility involves the willingness to be known for who we really are. We really are a sinner. We're really selfish. We really are problematic. We really do forget about God all the time. But then to take God's side against our sin. In other words, not to take our side to diminish our sin or our side to use our sin to punish us and say, oh, look, I'm never going to be a believer. I'm never going to really follow God. I'm never going to live up to my potential. No, you take God's side against your sin, and God's side is this. You're actually forgiven. And your sin is not strong enough to keep you from my mercy. Take my side against your sin. And then lastly, last point, God's roar calls us home. Verse 10, they shall go after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. This phrase, uh, roars like a lion, only appears in a couple places. It appears only in the minor prophets, actually, uh, here in Joel, in Amos, and in Zephaniah. 
And so for and those guys didn't all know each other. And so for whatever reason, God was using this illustration during this period of the minor prophets to illustrate who he was, that this roar of the lion shall make you tremble. Because what do we say when we say the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty. That word is chosen for a reason. Because we always forget that he's powerful. And we always forget his strength. And we make God docile and domesticated. Where he says, I'm going I'm to roar like a lion. And you're going to tremble. But you're not going to be scared of me. Because I... It's going to be the roar that calls you home. Look at verse 11. And I will return them to their homes. I will roar like a lion and they're going to tremble and I will return them back to their homes. And if you read the New Testament, you'll hear the roar of the lion all the time. Jesus having the lady, sinful lady wash his feet. People giving him a hard time about it and Jesus saying, leave her alone. It's the roar of the lion who was slain, who became the lamb. Uh, Jesus, uh, with the man born blind in John chapter 9, who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither one. This was done so you would understand the glory of God. It's the roar of the lion. Jesus there in the boat, and the people wake him up because they're too scared of a little wind and some waves. And so he rebukes the wind and the waves. And they said, who is this that he would even rebuke the wind and the waves? What's the roar of the lion? The transfiguration where Jesus is there transfigured for just a moment. And Peter decides they should build a tent and just stay there forever. And the heavens open up and says, this is my chosen son. It's the roar of the lion. And sometimes I think we forget how God is protective of you and loves you more than we could possibly ever imagine. His discipline is absolutely perfect for our life, just enough to call us back. And his covenant love are like these bonds of kindness and these cords of love that allow us to return to him. And he roars over us. So of course you know, if you know me at all, that I'm going to have to close with this famous quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, where C.S. Lewis didn't make this stuff up. He got it from Hosea and Joel and Amos and Zephaniah. This picture, if you don't know the children's series, this picture of uh, Aslan, this lion who's the God representative, and he had just gone through battling with the white witch, and he was put to death, and Lucy thought he was dead. The boys are off fighting. Lucy thought he was dead, but he appears back in the resurrected Aslan, and he said this, this means that the witch knew the deep magic, but there's a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back to the dawn of time, but if she had looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there was a different incantation. Remember last week when I told you in him all things were made through him? Nothing was made that was made without him, Colossians chapter 1. It's all for Christ in his glory. Before time had dawned, she would have known that when a willing victim committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. What God had done on the cross to make death start to reverse and to make all sad things come untrue again. 
and to redeem everything as far as the curse is found, as far as sin has affected your family or your relationships or your life or your heart or your body. He's going to make all things new. And then this next scene is my favorite scene that C.S. Lewis has ever written, and I've read everything that he's written except for two of his academic works. And now, said Lucy, oh, children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back. Now, I just want you to imagine the playfulness of this, and at the same time, the strength of this. This is a description of who your God is. Oh, children, catch me if you can. He stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. Then he made a leap high over their heads, and he landed on the other side of the table, laughing, though she didn't know why. Lucy scrambled over to reach him, and Aslan leaped again, and a mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail now diving between them, now tossing them up in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again, stopping unexpectedly. So all three of them rolled over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp that no one's ever seen except in Narnia. And whether it's more like playing with a thunderstorm or like playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. And the funny thing was that when they finally lay panting together in the sun, the girls no longer felt in the least tired or hungry or thirsty. Like when your kids are young and you get home from work and they all say, Dad, you're home, and they come and they run and you jump on you and they ride your back. You wrestle with them and you're all there together. They, they don't even know about your day. They don't know if you got fired or if you made any money. They have no idea. But you, your father, you love them, so you play with them. Sure, you could hurt them. You could beat them up in a moment's notice. But because they're your kids, with all of your power and your might, you provide for them and you protect them and you love them and you care for them. That's your God with you. That's your God. So why not follow him? Why not return to him? Hey, why not let his cords of covenantal love bring you back? Why not trust that his discipline is going to be absolutely perfectly measured out for you? And why not believe today that God loves you way more than you realize? In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And Father, now... I pray that we would see again this week your playfulness and your joy uh, and your mercy and your might and that this week, if we could just do it for a week till we get back here next week and we confess again and we remember grace again, but just for this week, may we enjoy going through this week with you. May we not reject you because we think we know who you are. Instead, may we see from Scripture your holiness, but you're not capricious. You're just, but you're not nefarious. Uh, you're altogether joyful, but you're not trite. You have mirth, 
but you don't take things for granted. May we see your character, your attributes. And Jesus, I pray this week we'd fall more in love with you and that we'd love doing life with you. Pray in your name. Let's stand and declare this last verse together.